feel the invitation of your Holy Spirit and the challenge as we hear your word in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Hey, listen, um, there could be a lot of reasons not to come to church, right? A whole lot of reasons. Football's not one of them today because the game's later. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I will tell you that, that we go back, has it been six weeks, Miss Bev? Has it been about six weeks now? Is that about right? Um, so Miss Bev got a hip replaced about six weeks ago and she's at church today. So, uh, amen. And what a recovery. Um, I can't think of uh, anything more difficult than, uh, you know, uh, having your body um, to the point of having to have a part replaced in it. Uh, but I can tell you that when Angie and I went and visited Miss Bev uh, before she actually had the operation, um, you know, at 89, didn't you just turn 89? Is that right? At 89, to walk in with a person with a broken hip and their spirits are just high and, and positive and, and just, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, when I walk out of the room, so she's turning 89, she's got a broken hip, and, and she's just praising God. I don't care what comes my way. Until I get to be 89 and I've got a broken hip, you know, <laughs> there's not much that, that I should allow to discourage me. I really should have high spirits when it comes to uh, God being present in my life. Amen. And so, uh, you see, I don't normally dress this way. You know that. Um, and uh, I wore the jersey because today is Super Bowl Sunday. How many are excited about Super Bowl Sunday? Yeah, a few of you, not many of you. Your teams aren't in the game, right? So here's how that works. So I've been a Bengals fan my whole life, and uh, they don't win very often. And so because of that, when, when you have a team that doesn't win, you tend to pick another team, you know, that, that might have the chance of going to the playoffs or the Super Bowl. And, and uh, so uh, years ago, um, when Tom Brady got drafted, yeah, it's silent for a reason. You all hate him, don't you? Uh, I said, you know what? Uh, red, white, and blue. I served in our military. I'm going to pick a patriotic team. So the Patriots, I'm going to go with the Patriots. And wouldn't you know it, they won game after game, after, you know, and here they are in the Super Bowl again, and, and I go in this morning, and how many of you, you know, you've got kids, and, and uh, you've watched The Incredibles a hundred times? You know Frozone in that movie? So this morning, I go to the closet, and I start looking for my Tom Brady jersey, and I scream from the closet, honey, where's my super suit? It should be in the closet. It's not. I'm telling you right now, I think she burn it because she doesn't like Tom Brady. <laughs> I knew that would go over really, really exciting for the rest of you. But uh, I figured the GOAT's going to do it again today. I might be wrong, but uh, this might be his uh, lead into his retirement. And I've heard so many people say, I don't care if they win or they lose as long as it leads to Tom Brady's retirement. <laughs> well... Um, you know, that's a, a Super Bowl story or a football story. But I want to uh, start a new series today called Stories That Change the World. Stories That Change the World. Today, I want to focus on uh, one particular story that changed the world with an emphasis around the fact that it brought good news. It was a story that changed the world, and it's a story that brought good news. So many of the stories that we read about Jesus in the Bible, they all brought good news. There might have been some situations going on that were, you know, bad, bad news, if you will. But, but Jesus, when he came on the scene, somehow he was always carrying good news. Amen. 
And so I want to read uh, our scripture for today, John 8, 1 through 11. And Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up and said, all right, but let the one one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now pause there for a moment and look up here. Most scholars believe what Jesus was doing is he was basically, you know, be it 10 commandments. He's basically going down, he's writing in the sand, and what he starts doing is he just starts writing different sins in the sand. He wasn't just... He wasn't just poking around in the sand. He was writing in the sand. wonder what he was writing. You think he started writing maybe the, the law, right? You want her stone for her sin. Well, let's just go ahead and point out all the different. Watch as it goes on then. When the accusers heard this, they slipped, or excuse me, then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And, he, and Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Hmm. It's been said that we change the people we're around or they change us. And I want to submit to you that anybody that Jesus came into contact with, he changed. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees, when you look at this, they came with a mindset to accuse this woman and put her to death. And somehow Jesus changed their mind. He changed them. Why? Because they up and left. And then if you look at it, for her, a woman that was brought and under condemnation, Jesus lifted her up out of that condemnation. He invited her up out of that condemnation and then of course he did challenge her to go and to sin no more amen so there was a real con- contrast to the teachers and pharisees view of god's law and jesus's view this is a story that forever changed the world without question why because jesus made it clear three specific things he made clear in this you read through the, the this whole text and when you get to the bottom you find out the things that he makes clear Here's what he made clear. Number one, everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner, Jesus being the only exception. The one who could have cast a stone chose not to cast a stone, but rather to show compassion. Amen. Number two, Jesus did not come to condemn. He didn't come to condemn anyone because we already stand condemned. The Bible says that. When we read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? 17, 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but to save it. 
When you, when you, when you read on, you start to get the, the context. God loved us, wanted to save us, and Jesus' reason for coming was not to condemn us. Amen? So Jesus did not come to condemn. And number three, Jesus came to free us from sin. He came to free us from sin. It wasn't just the fact of, of, of identifying that the whole world is in sin. Let he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. That's Jesus saying everybody's sinned, right? And then Isaiah say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's Jesus saying that. And then he comes along and he's not condemning. And then the next thing you know, he's telling her that she can go and sin no more. He came to free us of sin, amen? So what I want to do, if you think about it, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, what they do is, is they catch this woman in the very act of adultery, in sin. She's broken the law. Drag her over to Jesus, right, so that he can condemn her along with them and put her to death. And instead, Jesus shows that compassion to free her, right? And in that, um, caught in the very act, that's my first main point today. All of us, at one time or another, have been caught in the very act. You might, at the sound of my voice today, as the Holy Spirit sets down on you, he might point out some areas of your life that need to change. And in a sense, you've been caught in the act, right? But that's not why the Holy Spirit came. He, he didn't come to condemn us. He came to convict. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has come to convict mankind of their sin. What's the difference between condemnation and conviction? Conviction moves us to want to change, while condemnation makes us feel like we can never change. And I want to tell you that any encounter with God, any encounter uh, by, the, by the power of God's Spirit, according to God's Word, can change us. Amen? And so, caught in the act, what does that look like? Uh, you know, so the, the Pharisees and Sadducees are wanting to point out the law. Jesus' view of the law is very contrasting. Why? Because here's what the law says. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He knows that he's going to walk it out, fulfill it, the only one without sin, so that what he can do is show compassion and extend salvation to mankind. This is what the Bible says in Galatians. Basically, the, the, the law schools us in requirement. You can write this down. It's not in your notes. But the law schools us in the requirement so that we can understand the requisite. It schools us in the requirement so that we can understand the requisite. The requirement being that process, the law is being written, all of these things being established as time goes on. Moses is writing them down. It's being communicated to the children of Israel. It's been extended all the way down to us. How many of you uh, uh, believe that the Ten Commandments are not a bad thing? How many of you know that Paul the Apostle broke one of them? It's called murder. Come on now. And yet God's grace was still there for Paul's sin. God's grace is there for anyone's sin where there is repentance. Amen. So this is what Galatians says concerning this. Three, Galatians 3, 23 through 24. Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God. We were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar. Who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction. Making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. The King James says that the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. That the law is there and what it does is it reflects all these places that we fall short. And leaves us with this void, this feeling of I could never measure up. I, 
I, I don't think I could ever measure up to what God is requiring, right? I could never measure up with that, right? I, I can't measure up to the requirement, right, that God has, and Jesus is the requisite. Let me, let me tell you what requisite means. You ready? A thing that is necessary for the achievement of a specified end. God had a specified end that Jesus would die on the cross, right? Fulfilling the law so that you and I would be extended compassion and grace to come to him and be restored in relationship because of the work of Christ. Amen? So the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Basically, the tutor that instructs us that, yeah, we may never measure up. And that's why hearing the bad news, we start looking for the good news. <laughs> It's kind of like, okay, the bad news is, is that we all stand condemned. Is there any good news? I, I don't know about you, but when you watch the news, you're like, do you ever see the news? You ever watch the news? You're looking at it, you're like, is there any good news, right? You look at your life sometimes, and you're at that place where you're evaluating, do I measure up to what God wants for me? And we start doing the whole list thing, and it's like, man, I fall short there, I fall short there. And out of that comes this desire, is there any good news in the midst of this bad news in my life? And I want to tell you, yes, there is. Jesus came to give you good news, right? But the understand, to understand the value of good news, um, it's important to see what the requirement of the law was. Now, uh, today, what, part of what I want to do is I want to go into, um, anybody ever heard of the seven deadly sins? Heard of the seven deadly sins? There were actually eight originally. Let me read this to you. In the fourth century, a monk named Evagrio uh, Pontiso made a list of eight evil thoughts, gluttony, lust, greed, pride, envy, anger, boasting, and sloth. The list was spread widely and became well accepted as common sins which needed to be avoided. 200 years later, in 590 AD, Gregory I, who Protestants refer to as the first pope, reduced the list to seven sins, combining boasting and pride together and ranking them from the most to the least serious sins. His purpose was to provide a list of sins that would be inclusive enough to cause guilt in illiterate peasants. Does that sound like the way Jesus came talking to this lady in our story? See, that story changed the world, but... Interesting enough, men come along and want to change the story. They want to basically begin to teach for people to turn back to the law because somehow if you keep these things and you do these things, then what happens is, is you'll be right with God. I want to submit to you, you'll never be right with God unless you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And your motivation to live holy will not come from a list. It'll come from your relationship. Amen? Now, don't mistake me, the word of God is so important for us to understand how Jesus lived. But without his power, we can never live up to the standard that Jesus lived to, amen? When Jesus challenges this woman to go and sin no more, right? Remember what he, sa <clears throat> remember what he said before he said that. Neither do I accuse you. And I want to ask you something. Be honest with me. We're in church. You never know when a bolt of lightning might come down. Joking. Do you think she left and didn't mess up anymore? Do you think she left and never committed another sin from that point? Have any of us in our relationship with Jesus ever, you know, uh, we come to the Lord and it's like, that's it, I'm living for him. I'm never going to do anything wrong again, right? 
until you read, of course, you know, the Beatitudes by Jesus, right? Until you get to hearing some of his teaching. Look, if you have anger towards a brother and sister, right? He compares that to murdering. <laughs> Anybody ever been angry with someone else? You hear what I'm saying? And I, I wanted to kind of simplify that because I think all of us, if we're in a relationship, deal with anger from time to time, right? God, I know I do. Angie, she's so hard to live with. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> we do nothing but cut up and laugh for the most part anymore. So, But we worked through those years, didn't we? And it definitely was sin at times. Words would come out of your mouth. You'd say things that you wish you could reel back in, right? Hmm. <clears throat> So the seven deadly sins were originally called the seven capital sins from the Latin word caput, which means source. They were called capital sins because they awaken, listen to this, they awaken our sinful desires, which are the roots that lead us to commit other sins. They were, if you will, the root that sin grew from. Leaders of the Reformation emphasized our sinful nature rather than a list of sins. So... So when you think of the Reformation that took place, and you think of, of um, Martin Luther and, and John Calvin, and you think of some of the changes that took place, it was that it's our sinful nature that we have to watch. The list, if we try to keep the law, the reality is, is the Bible says the law gives birth to sin. The more we, I'll, I'll do this right, and I'll do that right, and I'll do that right, leads to, if you will, an attitude of self-righteousness. Look at what I did, look at what I did, look at what I did. Rather than recognizing no matter how good you do, you still have a sinful nature that needs, listen, it needs the spirit of God in you, transforming you from the inside out, not causing you to be conformed from the outside in. Can you say amen? So um, with that, I want to give you the seven deadly sins. Are you ready? Because I do believe that they give us some perspective of how sin works, although it's not the list that we need to keep. I'll make that clear in a moment. The first one is pride. This puts yourself in the place of God as the center and objective of your life. As the center and objective of your own life. And you think about the original sin, where did it come from? You will be as God. Not to look to God as your source, but to look to yourself as your source. This is you do not submit to the will of God. You do not submit to the will of God. Matthew 26 and 39. Going a little further... He fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Even Jesus battled with wanting to go his way versus God's way. But in that battle, Jesus was able to yield to the father's will. Amen. Why was that? Because he was humble before the father. The Bible says he humbled him and became a servant. And, and listen, this scripture says he humbled himself and became a servant even to the point of death. Christ humbled himself. He, 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 he allowed pride to be put aside, what he would prefer, and rather submit to the will of God. And in so doing, he crushed that sin of pride for all of us. Amen. The second one is covetousness. Wanting what belongs to someone else. Wanting what belongs to someone else. This, we don't enjoy what God has already given us. We don't enjoy what God has already given us. Celebrate what God has given you. Don't covet. Pray, right? Ask your heavenly father, because he already knows what you have need of. 
Don't covet. Pray. Put it in the hands of God and then let him bless you. Amen. Listen to what Romans 7, 7 through 8 says here. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I, uh, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. In other words, people didn't, it's not like they knew. So once the law came, right, sin came to life. Now they know. And as a result of that knowing, like I've already told you, now I know I fall short. So what do I do about where I fall short? I need someone who doesn't. I need Jesus in my life. I need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life because he's the one that can help me live like God. Amen. Are you getting anything out of this? Good. Number three, lust. Longs for what is unlawful. Lust, it longs for what is unlawful. It is an intense craving for what is not yours. Sensuous desire or bodily appetite, sexual desire, things that don't belong to you. An intense craving for what is not yours. Listen to Galatians 5.16 here. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is where the emphasis on that communion with the Holy Spirit, calling on the Holy Spirit at every turn of your life and asking him to guide you into all truth, asking him to empower you to live like Jesus. Amen. Number four, anger. Rebellion against God or another person. Anger, rebellion against God or another person. We didn't get what we want. We didn't get what we wanted and therefore... We're frustrated. We're frustrated. Hmm. How many of you are raising children? How many of you have like two and three year olds? My daughter Danielle's got, you know, a couple of those right now and fast on their heels is Bella who turns one in February. February twentieth? What? Fourth. February fourth. So she's got a one year old on their heels and you know. Um, I can tell you right now, when they were in visiting for Christmas, right, they didn't get what they want. Man, kids just don't get it, and they'll throw a fit. Frustrated because they didn't get what they want, right? And you know what? Um, It's one thing to watch a kid do that, and and if you're a parent, you you know what it's like in those moments when you're a parent, you're like, would you just, you know, get a hold of yourself, right? Um, But I don't know if that really is the worst situation. And you think about being an adult and acting that way, in areas of our life when we don't get what we want and we get frustrated, we get angry with those around us, amen? It's not a do as I say, not as I do, but, uh, you know, um, follow me as I follow Christ, amen? James 1, 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now again, I'm giving you a breakdown of this list. Are you hearing me? It's a breakdown of the list. It's like, yeah, I need to do that. And yes, I need to do that. 
Outward conformity is not what God's looking for. Inward transformation is. These things that I'm sharing with you, uh, as they come from Scripture, it's also important that what happens is, is we find ourselves, okay, don't do that, don't do it. No, Holy Spirit, would you be with me today and would you help me to live this out? Why? Because I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet it's not I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. It's that Jesus, live in me by your spirit and guide me in the direction that you would go. I know it's cliche, but just go the WWJD. Can anybody? What would Jesus do, right? Right? Cliche. The reality is there's a reason why it's cliche. It sticks. Everybody's like, oh gosh, I've heard that a million times. But if you asked yourself that question in every situation, I promise you what would happen is, as you invite the Lord to come into your life and help you, Jesus, what would you do? Help me to do what you would do. He will empower you to live like he did. Amen. The next one is, uh, number five, is gluttony. Gluttony is the overindulgence of our natural appetite. The overindul We're all going to do it for the Super Bowl. It's no condemnation. Just afterwards, repent for all the food that you, <laughs> you didn't need to eat. This is, uh, we eat and drink for our own pleasure to the point that we abuse our body. It's not, you, look, the Bible's full of times of feast, right? Feasts that, that were set for, for specific purpose of celebration. So there's nothing wrong with, with having a feast and way more food than you actually need and just, you know, enjoying yourself, but not to the point of abusing your body. Can you say amen? Proverbs 23, 20, and 21 here do not join those who drink too much wine or uh, gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Number six, envy. Envy is not being satisfied with what you have. Not being satisfied with what you have. We see what someone else has and we want it for ourselves. We see that nice car going by us and we're like oh i wish i had a car like that oh i wish that i had that house i wish i had those clothes oh i wish i right we're not to be envious of others around us but rather to extend to god again our request listen this we see what someone else has and we want it for ourselves. james three sixteen speaks to this for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder and every evil practice that's interesting, I think, that when there's envy and selfish ambition, that, that, that wanting for oneself, right, to the expense of another, if you will, um, it leads to an evil work in us. Number seven, sloth. Sloth is laziness, meaning you don't want to work. Not that you want to work and can't find a job, but rather I, I could find a job, but I really don't want to work. Come on now. It is the opposite of self-discipline, which keeps a person from taking care of themselves. And somebody else needs to take care of me. Again, back to children. It's fine when I have little children, right, and they're dependent on me. But, you know, I, I'll never forget, you know, Wade hits 16. Mom, would you make me a grilled cheese? Are your legs broke? You know, I mean, there's a point where you're, you're more than capable. Not, not that we didn't cook for the kids, but there were times it's like we're doing something. It's like, hey, can you go make me a grilled cheese while I sit here and play my video games? Uh-uh. <laughs> You've grown up enough. You can take care of yourself, and uh, we're not going to contribute to sloth. Come on, somebody. 
Matthew 25 and 26, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. This is Jesus telling this story. You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew the, that, that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. This, that story of, of the, 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 um, the parable of the talents that he gives one, five, gives one, two, and gives us another one, one. And the one with five goes and doubles it. The one with two goes and doubles it. The one with one, it's like, I knew you were, uh, you know, a hard master and, and that you reap where you have not sown. And so I went and buried this, but I didn't lose anything that was yours. Here, this, you get this back. And Jesus says that is a slothful servant, a wicked and lazy servant, knowing those things. And, and, and as a result, he takes what he has and gives to the one who, who turned five into ten and turns that servant over to the tormentors. What's that have to do with? Don't be slothful in the gifts that God's given you. Don't bury your talents. Don't bury the treasures that God's given you and, and don't bury your giftings. Use them to change your world, amen? And with that, we change our world by removing. Listen, going back to the original story where Jesus is, is, is with this woman caught in the act of adultery. He changed her world. Would you agree with me on that? She was facing death. He changed her world. How do we do that? By remo removing the accusation. Every one of us face things that we could be accused of not doing so well. See, that's the problem with the law. You see, the accusation of the law is this. Everybody in this room has fallen short of something where God's law is concerned. Can I get an amen on that? We've all fallen short, so all of us can stand accused. But Jesus came to fulfill that law, die on the cross, right, to extend grace, to do what? To remove the accusation. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that Satan goes before God day and night. And in the book of Job, it speaks about this. And he accused Job. And he accuses uh, God's people day and night, right? But we have, the Bible says, an advocate with the Father. We have an attorney with the Father, and that's Jesus. He is our advocate, and he pleads our case day and night. Satan comes up saying, ha, see, they don't measure up here, Lord. Oh, they don't measure up over here. Jesus is like, I took that on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Say become. So here's the thing about become. There is a process. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling under God. One day we will give an account. We will stand before him, the judge, and give an account. At this point with the judge, the advocate is pleading our case. That his sacrifice, right, paid for our sin. Now I want to share with you as I close today the good news. Say good news. Christ invites us out of condemnation and challenges us to live free from sin. That's what he told her. He removed, removed the accusation, right? He, he, he confronts her accusers, removes, removes the, man, I can't say remove this morning, removes the accusation, and then what does he do? Is he challenges her to go and sin no more. What he does is he gives us the power to live free of sin. How did he do that? How did he do that? One, he settled our debt. Jesus settled every single one of our debts with the Father concerning sin. Verse 10, where are your accusers? She's, she, could have, she was rightly accused. She was caught in the act of adultery. I always like to point out from that passage of Scripture, by the way, 
there was a little bit of chauvinism going on there. Y'all hearing me? How do I know there was some chauvinism, right? Man, I'm not bashing us around. Look, I, I know there's to toxic masculinity nowadays and all that stuff, right? I, my wife's glad I'm masculine, right? She doesn't want me to be effeminate. But in that, here, here's Jesus. There's a little bit of chauvinism going on there, and we know that because Pharisees and the teachers, right? We caught this woman in the act of adultery, really. Who was she committing that act of adultery with? Where's that dude? You hear me here? Because if they were caught in the act of adultery, I just want to know why is she here and the other and the guy isn't, right? Can you hear me on that? Jesus confronted all those kind of uh, injustices that took place in society. Uh, so he settled our debt. Where are your accusers? Number two, he satisfied our death. He satisfied our death. Verse 10b uh, and 11a. Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And number three, he secured our dominion. He secured our dominion. Verse 11b. Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. Amen? So, so here's the thing I want to I show you in that. He settled our debt when he died on the cross. We're going to receive communion as we close today. He settled our debt by dying on the cross. He settled, if you will, or satisfied our death when he descended into the grave. So, so the thing, he dies on the cross. God could have, you know, he could have been hanging on the cross. He dies on the cross and God resurrects him right there, but the work wasn't done. He descended, the Bible says, he went to the grave. And he took the keys of hell and death. He took all, any dominion that Satan had because in the, in the Garden of Eden when Adam turned authority of the world over to Satan. Because think about it, he's under God, submitted to God. And at the point where he accepts the lie of the devil, what happens is, is that he died. And is faced with dying for all, experiencing eternal death unless he receives eternal salvation or eternal life because of the sacrifice of Christ. But no, it wasn't just the work on the cross that paid for our sins. He descended into the grave and what he does is takes the keys of hell and death. Death no longer has a sting over our life. We may lay this body down, but we don't die. Our death, the Bible says that, that, that when we die in Colossians 2, it says that death is swallowed up by life. That if we lay this body down and in our mindset, why well, died? No, actually, I'm living like I've never lived before. Can you say amen? So he died on the cross and settled the debt. He descended into the grave and satisfied our death. And then finally, he resurrected from the dead and secured our dominion. Think about it. He told her, go and sin no more. That tells me that Jesus is saying she has something to do with not sinning. He challenged her, right? He invited her. Hey, look, I don't, I'm not accusing you. But then he challenges her as she leaves him. Go and sin no more. You have the power because of what I'm doing in your life to go and sin no more. She has dominion. Amen. So I want to challenge us as we go into communion this morning. And we change, change your world by declaring the good news in people's lives. Change your world by declaring the good news to everybody that's around you. You may not be able to change the whole world, but you can change your world. If you change the, the world where in, in the uh, sphere of your influence, if you change that part of the world, 
and another believer is changing that part of their world and on and on and on around the world it goes, we'll change the world by telling the stories of what Christ came to do on our behalf and on the behalf of mankind. And let me say this, it'll change the world. The Bible says that the early disciples did what to the known world? He turned it upside down. I think we've got to get back to telling the stories of Jesus so it continues to change the world around us, amen? Because when I think of America, you know, post-Christian society, you see things kind of sliding away from following God. I don't know if you've seen in the, in the news, but you see this, this uh, abortion issue going on. And now children can be born and then killed. I'll tell you right now, America, you know, we need to, the nation needs to repent. There needs to be repentance in our country. That, that slope, the world gets darker and darker, see, but the church is meant to get brighter and brighter. And that story, as we share that story, it should push. Light always dispels darkness. It's only, remember, don't take that light and hide it under a bushel. No, this little light of mine. You, don't, you know what I'm talking about? This little light of mine. Come on, sing with me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. Uh, right. I know I do silly things like that. But it's to hopefully brand the message in your heart and mind so that it has time to work. Take, please take these notes home. Meditate through these scriptures. Don't get stuck on thinking if I just do these things on the list. No, get stuck in a prayer that says, God, help me live the way that your son Jesus lived on this earth. Let the power of your Holy Spirit fill me so that I bring honor and glory to all that you are as my heavenly Father. Can you say amen? Amen. So listen, 